Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today we look at income inequality and economic efficiency. By the government's own admission, using OECD figures, the UK has one of the highest levels of income inequality in the European Union. Even the introduction of the national living wage, this government report says, has had very little impact on inequality in household incomes. So what does the disparity in income do for the efficiency of an economy? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Yeah, just how big a drain on the economy is inequality. Uh, Well, Steve, of course, if poor people earn more, they'd spend more. More companies would make more and then they'd sell more stuff because people are spending more. Uh, Is there any flaw in that reasoning? Because it seems like a lot of politicians struggle with this one. Well, they they come back and and say that inequality is necessary to provide incentive. That's the... uh, if you think about what, how they justify the level of inequality, they say, well, yes, you, you can't have a totally equal society. And I completely agree with that. Um, and then... It's a question of degrees, say, though, isn't it? I mean, if it's you a are... a question of degree, yeah. If you and, are really strugg- in struggle street, um, it's going to be pretty, you know, sometimes it's just impossible to pick yourself up from it. Well, that's the thing. If you, if you, we, we really have... What we've come used to and what we still have in our minds is a mass consumption society. Uh, we have a society where the wage that was paid to workers, and this is really going back in some ways to Henry Ford, the wage that was paid to workers was sufficient for the workers to buy what they produced. Mm. And the profit came out of the, you know, the, the fact that bankers were also buying and other capitalists were also buying and capitalists make a profit. Uh, but it's been based on selling to a mass consumption society. And that was active right up until about the early 1970s. And one of my little theories in life is everything went wrong in 1973. That's the precise year. Have you got, got it down to a month? Year. Got it down to a month yet? Was it middle of 73? <laughs> or? Uh, maybe, God, maybe, maybe, my, maybe my 20th birthday. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it was 1973 where the trend of rising uh, wages, particularly in America, ceased. So between 73 and 77, and if you want, if you want to date the, the point, at that point, there'd been a, a regular increase in middle class and working class income. So wage earners were getting a rising share of GDP up until that point. Right. And then from that point on, uh, GDP continued to rise, but workers weren't uh, sharing in that rise anymore. The, the real effective income uh, for a lot of workers has not risen for something of the order of 30 years. So what changed in the mid-70s then to make that happen? Well, you know, my usual bloody answer again, another credit bubble burst. Right. And we were, we're not, we, what we're not being paying attention to has been driving the inequality. But that seemed to be the breaking point um, in terms of where the share that was going to, to work has just stagnated. And there's been a rising profit share uh, since that point where you include both the profit going to industrial capitalists and the profit going to the finance sector, the two rows. And my analysis, the, the argument that I've have developed out of my models uh, more so than anything else because my models reproduced the characteristics of the um, the Great Recession and the Great Moderation beforehand, but they also reproduced the rising inequality. And this is something that I did not 
have in my mind before I uh, built my Minsky right. model. Not something you set out to prove. It was just not a byproduct. It was it was an un- unintended, unexpected side effect because. And if people look at the, uh, well, let's put some links to some of the Minsky models in the podcast, but one of the key ones is an incredibly simple model that just has three social classes, workers, bankers, and capitalists. Workers bargain for wage rises depending upon the level of employment. Um, bankers get a wage, get an income depending upon the level of debt and the rate of interest, and capitalists get an income after they pay the other two. And I, uh, it's all simply drive strictly from economic definitions. There's no um, ideological thing like a labour theory of value built in there, which Marxists would have, or a marginal productivity theory of income distribution, which neoclassicals would have. It just simply says, here are these three social classes. Workers can get wage rises if if employment is low. Uh, Bankers get an increase in income if debt is high. And you simulate it. And what I found was uh, where, even though in my simple model, I didn't have any borrowing by workers or households. I simply had borrowing by firms. Mm-hmm. The income that when, 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 work, when bankers' share went up, the income share that compensated wasn't capitalists, it was workers. Right. So they lost out they for lose the capitalists. Out. Right. And as this, I explained the logic of that in, in Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? It took me a while to understand what the hell is going on because this is what's called in complex systems an emergent property. And emergent properties are not things that you can derive by looking at an individual component. You've got to look at how the whole thing interacts. And in a lot of the explanation that Minsky had for a crisis occurring, which I was expecting to be reproducing, were things like a rising rate of interest over time, meaning that people's debt, uh, initially the debt burdens were bearable at the um, level they committed to, uh, but the interest rates rise over time so that burden was not sustainable and so on and so forth. And that sort of thing, you can often blame the Federal Reserve for putting up rates too too high. Mm. But this they had none of that. It's only had a fixed interest rate, no change in the interest rate. A bit like a, the mar- what I was effectively modelling is the margin between deposit rates and loan rates remain constant. That's what I was right. effectively doing. And I, what I found was, much to my amazement, that um, the capitalist share fluctuated around or near an equilibrium. The, as the banker's share rose, it was the worker's share that fell. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? And the logic is simple and interesting enough, a little bloke with a, a really, really bushy face called Carl um, made this argument back in 1867. And in trying to explain his verbal cyclical model of the economy, he made a step in saying, in other words, the rate of investment is the independent variable, not the dependent. The rate of wages is the dependent variable, not the independent. And he was right. Uh, when I simulate the system, um, investment determines the level of output that determines the level of employment and the desire of capitalists to invest when, when it hits where they need to borrow money to reach their desired investment. So their desired investment rate exceeds retained earnings. That, of course, means they've got to borrow money from the banks. So they start paying income to the banks. That leads to a boom. In the real world, what tends to cut off the boom is rising um, input prices, particularly raw materials. I leave that out, but I just look at like rising wages instead. But it's you, you can extend it to saying what would happen if uh, you know, oil prices rise and stuff like that, which we saw back in the seventies, obviously. So the rising level of um, of, of prices of, of, of input prices cuts profit. There's a rising level going to debt as well. The boom comes to an end. You go into a slump. As the slump uh, goes on, the wages share and the raw materials costs fall. Mm-hmm. You start paying down some of the accumulated bank debt 
But you get back to the point where capitalists are willing to start borrowing money again before the debt debt has been eliminated. So the debt has risen a bit, and you're back to the same share going to to um, capitalists. Yeah. You're now paying money to bankers as well. It can only come at the expense of the workers. But I'm, but, that's, yeah. But even in but, those good times, workers aren't getting their cut because I mean, you mentioned the point that when uh, when there's a you know a lot of demand for people, you'd expect wages to go. But that's not been happening over the uh, over this well, decade. That's, we've now we've now got to the stage where wages are so stagnant that. Uh, Wage with wage rises have barely exceeded inflation and quite frequently been below it. Oh, yeah. And you look at the case of the UK, we, we know that wages in real terms haven't haven't returned back to the levels of 2007 yeah. after the financial crisis. So for 11 years, in that, in that sense, while GDP has been rising, workers have not been benefiting from it in terms of an increase in their pay rate. They've been getting uh, finally recovering in employment, but uh, not a recovery in the wage rate. So their their capacity to to spend is no greater than it was uh, eleven or twelve years ago. Whereas the pact that kept the American dream together was that real wages would rise virtually every year, and you know the old rising tide lifts all boats. Well, now one of those boats has been anchored at the same point for between ten and thirty years, and it's no wonder that particular boat is getting rather cranky about taking on water. Yeah, the common argument, of course, is uh, if you do if you do push wages up, then that reduces the profits of companies. Or it forces them to automate, and uh, and then they reduce the number of jobs. So it's actually a bad thing for workers. Conveniently, they'd be better <laughs> off if they earned less. I mean, that's seriously that is the argument we hear, isn't it? Uh, well, you, John, John Kenneth Galbraith put this quite brilliantly some time ago, and he said that the you can summarise mainstream economics in the proposition that the rich don't work hard enough because they're not paid enough, and the poor don't work hard enough because they're paid too much. Yeah. <laughs> which is crazy stuff but i mean we've um but is it as simple as saying well we just need to boost those wages at the lower end is that actually going to help to reduce this this question of inequality i mean is well, it- i think not not while the debt is there I and mean, this is again again this i sound like a crack record to myself which is why i find this frustrating but the debt isn't, sometimes the debt isn't sitting with those people at the bottom end though is it the doesn't debt- matter right. it's it's an income claim on the capitalists yeah and 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 that has to be paid so if you have debt uh, this is one of the ironic. So, so long as that money is going to the capitalists, it's not going. If it's going to the owners of the company who can use it for productive use to to grow the company and employ more people, then that's a good thing. And obviously, if more if the people at the bottom end are paying a bit more, then they've got more money that they can spend, which is uh, helping the economy. You're happy with those two? It's just the amount. Yeah, that's but going not, to the not when it's going to the bankers. Yeah. Yeah. Not when it's going to the bankers. And that's the trouble that goes to the financial sector. So the increase in inequality really has been a transfer of wealth from the working class to the financial sector. And it's, it's even without, like in, in, a, in a stylized model, without the, without the workers borrowing, of course, they do borrow on top of that and they get caught up in asset bubbles. Um, so what we've done is we've replaced leverage and asset bubbles for income distribution. Mm. And ultimately, that's that's on a hiding to nothing to lose. And it comes down to what, what, you know, why does inequality matter? What's wrong about inequality? Because, as you said at the beginning, there are arguments that we need inequality, and I agree with those to some degree, some extent. But I think, it's gone beyond that point. Yeah. Well, I think actually you said that. I don't think I said that we need inequality. I think it's, I think it's, <laughs> yeah. it sounds like an awful Sorry thing. Sorry about that. But, um, but I mean, if surely it also hits productivity, doesn't it? If you, the wider your inequality, the more inefficient your economic system is going to be. Well, here it comes down to, again, a, a state of mind and to how you understand and how you explain where inequality comes from because the mainstream explanation, the neoclassical explanation is every factor of production, as they call them, gets their marginal product, meaning you receive what you contribute 
to output. So mm-hmm. that the, net, the, the wage that every worker gets is equivalent to the additional amount of product generated by the last worker. That's the explanation that's given for wages. Equally, the same argument is given for profit. So the, the rate of profit that all capitalists get is equivalent to the contribution to production of the last item of capital added to the production stock. Yeah. And that, that, that mental construct is why mainstream economists and the, and the politicians they've schooled don't really understand people complain about inequality because they say, well, it might be unequal, but you're getting what you contribute. So Jamie Dimon is obviously contributing a million times as much as you're contributing. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, is it a problem we can ever fix? And actually, is it a problem we need to fix? I mean, if the wealthy are wealthy and the poor are not as well off, do we, do we, don't we just want them to have enough? I mean, it, aren't we always going to have this 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 wealth Divide, and maybe we should talk of the difference between wealth and income in just a second. But this divide, anyway, between uh, how wealthy some people are, whether it trickles down or not. I mean, if people are able to get by, aren't we always going to face that in society? And is it something we just have to live with? We're going to have it. Every society has had an income distribution uh, with inequality as its heart, and it's a question of how sustainable that inequality for that society itself is. There's the inequality um, a stimulus which is the argument the neoclassicals have put forward, or it is something which is becoming an impediment. Yeah. And my the reason that I come down and saying the level of what now is an impediment is because that inequality is due to um, too much of the income going to those who have accumulated a debt charge on society. It's not actually leading to investment by the by the capitalists to expand out output over, overall. And you actually get a lower rate of growth when you have a high level of, of debt. And you also, the high level of debt is a precursor to a crisis. The debt, if the debt gets to, to rise so that workers' incomes are falling, in my models, and I think in the real world, that is a prelude to a financial breakdown. So the inequality is not something which is enhancing the productivity and the growth of the economy. It actually ends up um, slowing the growth and leading to a, a crisis which you know, destroys growth, as we've seen from 2008. So the bank said to wealthy people, hey, look, we're not going to lend you any money. You've got more than enough money by yourself right now, so spend your own money rather than using ours. Then we'd all be in a better place because then they'd be forced to use that wealth for productive means rather than racking up more more debt. Well, there's a question of, of, of how we actually generate spending power, and that's one of the little things I'd like us to explore at some point in the future too, and that's the decline in the rate of turnover of money. Mm. That's quite marked. It's quite an obvious uh, statistical. Yeah, we talk, we've talked about that. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. down to, it's down from, like, what, like 20, 20 or 30 times down to eight times or something. No, something not like. quite that bad. But it's in terms of turnover of uh, what they call money of zero maturity. It's gone from America's case about an, a, a, pre, a pre-73 period bubble uh, before, before the inflation took off in the 70s, and that led to actually increase in velocity. Money, an average American dollar or money is money of zero maturity, which is the widest definition of money, uh, turned over about 2.2 2. 2 times, and now it's turning over slightly over 1. Right. And what okay. that means is, of course, you've got less, uh, less monetary demand coming out of each dollar. Yeah. And that is partly what is driven, I think, the, uh, it, it's partly driven and driven by the rise in credit as the foundation for demand, which, of course, certainly evaporated. Right. So just back, so if debt is the real issue, and it's not the poor people who are borrowing, um, they may borrow a bit and then discover they can't pay it back with their payday loans and all that sort of stuff, but it's the wealthy people who are borrowing the most. And so isn't that part of the problem? Because they've got enough money. Wouldn't it be better if they were just using that money, putting it back into circulation and making it work more rather than sitting on it and using it as uh, as equity to borrow more money against it? 
Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the impact of the, the debt burden slowing down the rate of growth and being paid for by the poor, Yeah, uh, which is, again, that's, that's an emergent property of capitalism. It's not something that the poor actually have to. They're not paying the pound up front, but it's, it's been transmitted to them through the social dynamics, which Marx captured so well, that the rate of investment is what determines the rate of economic growth, and that's what determines wages share. And uh, so workers end up being on the receiving end if more and more of the, uh, the high level of debt, they're the ones who are on the receiving end of the borrowing by capitalists, even though they're not doing the borrowing themselves. So how do we change this behaviour, which is seeing more money uh, migrating to the finance sector rather than the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the capitalists and, and the workers? Because we, you know, when we look at how you fix inequality, we tend to think, well, maybe you know, we need a, more, uh, uh, a, a better tax system. But it never seems popular because um, you know the idea we always hear that argument won't do the richest 20 percent are paying six times more than the poorest 20 percent so we need them to we, we can't charge them more because they're already paying six times more even though they're earning considerably more than that uh, and in fact both those groups actually in the UK are paying around 35 percent of their gross income on on tax so actually it doesn't really matter whether you're very rich or very poor you're actually still paying the same percentage which I think people don't realize we haven't actually got that progressive a uh, a tax system uh, in this country. But taxes, I don't know, can we fix it with tax? Because tax is complicated. The UK tax legislation is 21,000 pages long. Do we want to add another five or 10,000 pages to that? No, I, mean, I think at the end, the focus on taxation is the wrong focus because, yeah. again, as I said, it's reducing leverage, which actually will change the distribution of income. So, uh, again, this is something you, you can't think about a, a, a capitalist economy in a simple direct uh, increased taxes will reduce inequality way because there are so many uh, complex feedbacks that end up, but might well mean that that tax is paid by the workers as well rather than paid by the rich. And ends up again when I model the government's existence in the economy, I get that effect as well. Uh, though what you get out of it as well, you don't get the, you you continue getting growth. You don't have a crisis, um, but it's. Taxation, I think, is, is wrong in several ways. First of all, with the, the awareness of modern monetary theory, uh, the government doesn't need to tax to spend. It's taking money out of circulation. Mm. And the thing is, the income tax is a very ineffective way of doing that because it's very easy for the wealthy to move their income and their wealth offshore and evade taxation, as we've seen. Of course, the UK itself is a form of tax haven. So and it is, and I, I would it, rather it, tax transactions than yeah. and, and focus on the debt level than worry about income tax. But is, 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 is the question really more about how poor the poor are rather than how wealthy the wealthy are? I mean, do, do, we, do we really care? If it wasn't for the fact that they were borrowing so much, do we really care how much money is sitting with the wealthy? Uh, in front, actually, in a way, no. I think it is the leverage that I worry about that, that actually causes the, the problem. If, if we had uh, a lower level of leverage like we had back in the 60s, then the inequality also would be lower, uh, but it would be lower not because uh, capitalists are getting less, but because the finance sector is getting less yeah. and work is getting proportionately more. So th- this is often where you get caught in a... In a um, if you have a two-class view of the world, then you end up being saying, well, if it's going to, if the work is going to get better, the capitalists have to get worse off. And what I'm saying is no, it's actually at a minimum a three-class system. If the workers get better off, that can be at the expense of the finance sector, leaving the uh, capitalists untouched uh, directly and indirectly probably benefiting from the fact that because they're paying more money to workers and less to bankers, there's more demand coming in through the front door and they're, they're, even not their rate of profit might rise, but the absolute amount of profit and the actual rate of growth of the economy could be higher. 
So with a three-class view, you get out of the trap of saying, well, if we pay workers more, therefore capitalists have to get less and the economy will grow more slowly. What I'm saying is if we can reduce the amount we're paying to the finance sector, workers would get more, they'd be spending more, capitalists would be getting the same share, but that share would be the actual level, the, the, the cake in that sense would be, being, be growing more rapidly than if we leave the level of inequality we've got right now. Well, I mean, let's be honest, the, the top 1%, we all know what industry they're working in, um, yeah. all of them, I think. It, I mean, if you look at the... Um, who was it who said that, um, I think it was the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, wasn't it, recently said in the UK um, that, uh, you know, if you're on £75,000, that's not exactly a good income. And everyone scoffed at that and said, well, you know, it's, uh, it sounds all right to me, but actually it's pretty hard to survive in the South of England on 75000 In fact, if you're on £75,000 in the UK pre-tax, you are in the top 5% of UK income, and a lot of people struggle on that. Uh, I mean, we've got 20% on an income of 20,000 or less. They really are struggling. Mm. But it's right the way through the system, isn't it? Right up to the top. So I think it's it's not a question of the rich-poor divide. It's the fact that that middle income, probably relative to the top 1%, is also also sliding down. So I guess the median value is is declining. Um, It's the middle income people who are struggling as well and that, maybe that's why we've got such, such a heightened awareness of this issue because everyone is starting to feel it yeah i think it is a, it's, it's a, a very much a almost a nationwide phenomenon for the for britain because again if you see studies of the degree of inequality in each society the uk is far more unequal than german society mm. like a factor of five or why so. i think largely because the the Germans are still investing in a physical economy mm. and the English got obsessed with the going to the finance sector back under Maggie Thatcher and seeing if they see a services and finance future and that the inequality which comes out of a, of, of a financially driven economy is far worse when you make finance the whole focus of your investment program. So the rate of investment in the UK is, is, is trivial. It's about one, th- one, about between, I think about one half to maybe even one-third of the level of investment per capita or per uh, as part of the, the economy as it is in Germany. And consequently, you, in real terms, you have to be growing more slowly. If you, and therefore, people are, so people are getting a, low, a lower share. If people were earning more money, so those on 75,000 suddenly managed to make it up to 100, those on 20 managed to make it up to 50, I mean, wouldn't that just inflate prices, particularly house prices. So, uh, you know, we might actually find we're actually worse off at the end of the day. Well, that's what I'm, I'm worried about. Like it's a simple argument saying we put wages up without, without considering uh, the, the, the feed-through effects. So you do need to look at those and say what they might be. Will they drive up house prices? Uh, I mean, certainly when, when, when the, the argument that workers being paid more will bankrupt firms uh, tends <laughs> to be false because the mm. workers – as much as they get take out the back door as pay, they come in through the front door as customers, whether they're, you know, not necessarily your firm, but other firms. The cash revenue increases when you increase wages, particularly now, because, any, as you say, anybody probably below £60,000 in the UK is pretty much spending everything they earn. Yeah. So they're, they're not in that sense. In the individual sense, for individual capitalists, they're a cost. But for the overall system, they're a cash flow. And the uh, UK has really got squeezed. I, I think when you, when you say that people on 75,000, I mean, everybody, like 95% of the population, and depending on where they're located in the Europe, in, in the UK as well, of course, they are uh, unable to survive when they're in the, you know, almost the top 5% of the country. It's a, it's, a, it's a sign of a declining country, in fact. Yeah. 
And America is similar because uh, America is not quite that extreme. But I think a large part of the people who voted for Trump were those who haven't seen any increase in their raw wages for 30 years. Yeah, same issue, isn't it? And I think part of the dissatisfaction as well is that then everybody sees that the influence in society is falling to that top 1%. So it's not just the wealth, it's the other influence. So, um, it's the power too. Yeah. yeah. So you know, <laughs> my wife and I have been watching Paul Dark uh, over the last few nights, going taking ourselves back to Britain in the 18th century when, of course, the rich controlled – I know, of course, naturally, Paul Dark is a historically accurate uh, of course. rendition of 18th century. All, all, the, uh, all men looked like that and all the women were fawning over them. But um, the rich controlled everything. You know, they justice, obviously they had the capital and they had the land with their sprawling estates. I think there's the fear, isn't there, that that society is going back that way. Yeah, and, and that uh, you know, predates the mass consumption society. Mm. And... Uh, and so the, the mass consumption society really was a byproduct of the Great Depression and the Second World War when uh, there was a realisation that if we don't give the mass, the great mass of society a decent standard of living, they will find themselves uh, looking for the overthrow of capitalism, whether that's by a right-wing or a left-wing group. And lo and behold, <laughs> what had risen in popularity in the last 10 years, but right-wing and left-wing groups. So the answer seems to be you're saying that uh, it's we've got to find a way of taking – that money out of the uh, out of the finance industry, get the involvement of the finance industry out of the loop, or at least have it less less influential. So it is more capitalists and workers. But how do you do that? Well, again, the modern debt jubilee. Yes, yeah. that's, that's that's the way we'd I'd like to do it. The way we did it during the Second World War was we bombed the hell out of each other, uh, particularly the you know the the Allies dropping more effective bombs ultimately on the on the Nazis and the Japanese and vice versa. Well, that's always an and, option. That's always an option, <laughs> and and that both eliminated debt in the in Europe because nobody could afford to pay debts that presumed they still had factories. Uh, while in the UK and America, the the rationing that went with the Second World War, plus the enormous level of spending that went with it at the same time by the government uh, to to finance all the had <coughs> all the munitions that were being thrown at uh, said Germans and and uh, and Japanese, um, meant that. They paid their debt down while the war occurred. So by the end of the war, private debt was the lowest it's ever been. And bang, uh, we had this miracle we still call the golden age of capitalism. So given that hopefully a war, but certainly a debt jubilee is not going to happen uh, perhaps in your lifetime, maybe my lifetime, you know, given because I've, I've got <laughs> exactly, I've got at least another 10 years than you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, although you do lead a healthy life, I have to say, so maybe not. Um, but um, given that it's not going to happen in a hurry, whichever way you look at it, is that what can we do to try and at least moderate it to stop that situation getting worse in the meantime? <sighs> <laughs> Notice the silence. Yeah, well, you've got uh, to change the behaviour of banks, basically, haven't you? You have to. You have to. You have to change our, our way we treat the banks. We can't treat debt as sacrosanct anymore. We should be trying to write that debt off. Mm. Uh, but we're not going to do it. And I think what's going to happen instead is that it'll be an existential threat to the society that leads us to spend in such a way that, as a side effect, we reduce the leverage. As said, last time that was the Second World War. This time I think it'll be like when climate change actually wakes up. Yeah, uh, well, that, maybe that, yeah, that could be the war. Absolutely. So that what, could be the war. But yeah. w- what about global inequality? So the UK gives 0.7% of its gross national income in foreign aid, supposedly. The biggest recipients of that are Pakistan. Uh, that Actually, they're trying to cancel out their foreign debt 
repayments, which amounts to about $6 billion uh, a year. Then we pay money to Ethiopia, who obviously needs Afghanistan, which is just uh, derelict, and Nigeria. They're, they're the biggest recipients of our foreign aid. Uh, some of those countries are riddled with wars, of course. But generally, if those economies saw strong economic growth, if money was put in in the right way, that presumably would help to reduce inequality in those countries, but also in the world, wouldn't it? I mean, if we forget well, about one, one thing which has driven a drop, drop in global inequality has been the relocation and production of transnationals to third world countries, uh, which in particular in China has harnessed that very effectively. Mm. And so before it did uh, Japan and Korea. And uh, 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 not. But I thought these. I thought it was a bad thing. I thought these companies were exploiting the workers and repatriating their profits back. In, to- in some countries, that's what they've ended up doing. So Indonesia got nowhere out of their proposals for and for a um, export-led industrialization. But other countries did very well because they forced some of that wealth to accumulate in local capitalists and develop local industries. So Korea did that. You know, we all know the name of Samsung. Uh, created very well at protecting its own telecommunications industry and letting that um, be- become a, 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 the behemoth it has. Uh, China, we all know about. Let's listen to Donald Trump on China any day. Um, and Japan clearly benefited, and, and so did Europe from the Marshall Plan. So that that all rebuilt capacity. Um, but it, this, there's been a decline in global inequality, but an increase in inequality within nations. And ultimately, what drives the overall um, social outcome is that inequality within nations. And, and and that's what we're seeing now, that there's, you know, the, the middle class, there is now a substantial middle class in China. Uh, there are fairly well-off workers relative to what they were under the communists, uh, under the straight communist regime pre, uh, pre Deng Xiaoping. So they have done very nicely out of it. And But the people who've suffered have been the workers of other countries. So globally and specifically within individual countries, it's not income really, is it? That's the issue. It's the wealth. It's the, the, the prediction is the, the world's richest 1% will control two thirds of the world's wealth by 2030. So we really are getting back to those days that I was describing, you know, the days of feudal lords and, and serfdom, uh, which tends to lead to revolution. Maybe that's going to happen before your war. Uh, and this, so that, and we've talked about this before. You know, a big part of that problem is that that wealth is inherited, isn't it? We need to do something about trying to stop the inheritance of of wealth, so it moves from generation to generation, because that obviously gives no one a chance if they're not in the right family. That's right, and it's also coming out of the fact that income tax is so easily evaded, mm. uh, which is one reason I'm in favour of going across to more transactions-based taxes because it's very hard to evade transactions. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to declare transactions, that, that can be said, well, therefore, if you make that many transactions, this is the amount of tax you should pay. It's much, much harder to say, oh, well, you know, uh, the, the, the hiding transactions is harder than harder than faking costs and then, and then or transferring costs and, and changing your income statement. So I'd rather go to a transaction tax-based system uh, but when you look at the level of inequality, one one fascinating study I've read very recently, a new PhD by a Canadian called Blair Fix, and he tried to interpret the wage data that he saw, the income distribution data, and he couldn't make sense of it using martial productivity theory at all. Jamie Diamond is not that much more productive. He's probably you know, more of a vampire squid than a productive member of society. Um, but what he found was the only thing that made sense was your wage, your payment reflected the hierarchy that reported to you. <laughs> and the further up the hierarchy you were, the more money you got. And with society becoming more hierarchical, with the growth of a large corporation like Amazon and so on, then partially that's a, that, that, that did a better job of explaining the distribution of income and to some extent wealth than anything based on the idea of a marginal product and contribution to output. So we need antitrust legislation or monopoly type legislation then to try and stop companies getting too big. 
Um, yeah, well, here we also... Uh, no, then we get into the discussion we had about Amazon the other day, which is, yeah, well, actually, uh, the, the fact they're getting so big is what's keeping prices down. Yeah, but also at the same time, Amazon's paying zero income tax. Now, yeah. income, uh, we're paying a lot more taxes than paying a tax per transaction. Yeah, yeah, would solve that problem. All right, well, there we are. There's a bit of policy to get us on, but basically we need a war, seems to be the idea. But, is, <laughs> I mean, is it is it that big an issue in countries like the UK? Do you see it getting worse? And do you see, do, I mean, do you see civil unrest sitting at the end of all of this? I, I think we're seeing it right now. I mean, I think like Brexit was a large part of that inequality. And the fact that it isn't just any inequality, it's what you've got left to live with uh, is insufficient to live, com- to live at all. Yeah. And I remember the, one, one person being... I'm on BBC program showing um, somebody I'm arguing the case. Look, if you if we get Brexit, your income is going. You're going to lose your income. Uh, you'll suffer. And she said, I might lose all this, and pointed around to a you know, housing estate, devastated um, area with no no industry and and you know, drug addiction in place of, of employment. So uh, there is, if the inequality still meant that those at the bottom got a living wage, then it wouldn't be the driving issue that it is. But of course, people are getting less than a living wage or feeling stressed all the time and are worried about not just their current income but also their retirement, um, then that's what leads to social unrest. Well, and that's easily fixed, isn't it? You just need to say, well, okay, there needs to be that, that living wage. There needs to be, a, you know, push up the minimum wage. If we believe that, uh, as you've said, the people who are going to get hurt by that are going to be the finance sector rather than the, the capitalists, seems like a, an easy decision to make, doesn't it? It's one one one, one policy I would be in favour of, you know, boosting the minimum wage and using that as a method to ultimately hit not the work, not the capitalists who get you know what they pay out as wages, effectively they get back as revenue from those same workers. It reduces the power of the financial sector, and that's what we've got to do ultimately to reduce inequality and also to stop this tendency towards crises. Excellent stuff. Well, we'll catch you again very soon, Steve. Thank you for that. Welcome. Simple as that. What a shame uh, they've just finished the Conservative Party conference because Theresa May could have uh, shocked everyone, couldn't she, by just saying, yes, we're going to increase minimum wage by another 50%. Problem solved. Uh, that's it for this time. Join us again next time for another edition of the Debunking Economics podcast with me, uh, Phil Dobby, and Professor Steve Keen. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. 